We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> and I want to tell you a story that kind of matches the, maybe the feeling of today in Scripture. When, uh, when we first went, the very first trip we ever took as a church to Burkina Faso was a sightseeing, not sightseeing, sight survey, vision trip. And uh, there was, um, in this country of Burkina Faso, there, were, there was some work of the Lord down in the city of Bobo Dioulasso. And so there was a recommendation, hey, maybe you should go see that, go check that out. And so we said, okay, let's go to, to Bobo, as they call it. Uh, which <clears throat> from uh, Ouagadougou, the main capital, to Bobo is about, it's like the I-95 of Burkina which means it's a paved road, it's a paved two-lane road. And, <clears throat> uh, and, you know, there could be goats crossing it, there could be people asleep on the shoulder. Um, and it turns out to end up being what might be a two-hour drive here in the States is about a five-and-a-half, six-hour drive there. Because even though you have this fairly decent road, um, it's, it's one lane your direction, and... Uh, there are speed bumps uh, all over the place. Anytime you would come to a place where the highway was cutting through a village or near a village, they would put a set of speed bumps to slow you down. So the trip down there, it wasn't, there was no point in even having cruise control because you'd be kind of going through a village at 10 or 15 miles an hour over these speed bumps and then you'd break out and you'd, you'd look down the road and it looked like maybe I have a quarter mile of no speed bumps, and there'd be this mad dash to accelerate up to 65 miles an hour to feel like you're making ground, and then you'd come on the brake, slow back down for more speed bumps. It's kind of how it felt. Here's a picture of the car we were in. And I, you may not be able to see in the bottom right, but I am in the very back. I'm the back of the back. So you see the two doors there? I'm behind that, among the luggage. Okay, it was like in the land before seatbelts, where I was the goo that fit in the crevices of the suitcases. And, uh, you know, my arm was kind of stuck like that, and my head had to be a little off to the left for like six hours in the back of a car going over constant speed bumps. It was, uh, it was not, it was terrible. It was terrible. Well, I don't know if you've ever been driving along, whether it's in a neighborhood or somewhere, but where maybe the sun uh, is at an angle so that trees cast long shadows and maybe a speed bump doesn't have the best paint markings and so you don't see it until the last second. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I have, and it was on this day. So we were driving along, you know, about five hours into our six-hour trip and we were we, at our top speed of 65 miles an hour when out of nowhere, a speed bump jumped out and hit us. And my recollection is that the car went into the air. That's how it certainly felt where I was sitting, is that the car went airborne, the luggage around me went airborne. Uh, uh, it actually hurt my spine. I mean, we, the picture of the car that you saw was because when we landed and stopped, we had to get out to determine if it was still a car, like to go and walk around it because it was such a traumatic event 
to hit the speed bumps going so fast. And so we got out and we stretched our bodies and we checked the car out. And um, fortunately, we were able to make the rest of the trip. But I tell you that story because that is how today might feel for you as we walk through the word of God. Like we've been walking through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Uh, and it's for the most part, it's been, you know, you speed up and then you slow down, you speed up and you slow down. We see everything that's coming, we handle it. Today, there's something coming. And don't read ahead, you'll ruin it. But today, there's uh, you, some, the moment I said that, people went to read ahead. Today, there's one of these speed bumps that maybe we don't see. And uh, we're going to kind of tackle that together. Now, as a bridge, kind of from last week to this week, uh, today we're going to hear Paul give rules, rules for behavior as it relates to the gifts. And if, especially if you're a guest coming in, you're coming in in the sixth week in two, two or three chapters. So Paul did not start with the rules. Paul started with the root problem. This whole letter is about one major root problem that Paul's sort of working in. There's a root problem and then He's been focusing on what does this root problem look like in the area of gifts of the Spirit. And we've been dealing with sort of the circumstances of the spiritual gifts. And finally, at the end of things, we're getting rules. And I only want to say that because rules are of no value if you don't know why they're given. But if, if you've been in the conversation for a long time, we're finally, we're finally getting to, okay, so what are we supposed to do on Sunday? And uh, I'll give you one example of this that's happened earlier before our sermon series. Uh, in chapter 11, which is still in the every Sunday, like when you gather on Sunday environment, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. So in chapter 11, verse 17, he has this long talk about the Lord's Supper, but it ends with a rule. It ends with a rule. So here in verse 33 of 11, you hear this. After a long discourse about the Lord's Supper, you hear... So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's rule number one. Rule number two, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He ends with these two rules. Now, that's not that helpful unless you know where it came from. So we're going to look at the rules today, but we're going to do that with a sense of why and where we've, you know, a memory of where we've been over the past several weeks as we get here. So I'm going to pick up and read in the 14th chapter. I'm going to pick up in verse 26. I'm going to read 26 through 28, and I want you to imagine what, what the main idea is, okay? So just imagine we're driving along. You're safe. We're just driving along, okay? Everything's fine. Here's what he says. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So here's your first set of rules. Did you note the big idea? It's in verse 26. He says it should be done for the building up. Let all things be done for the building up. That's the big idea. And it, 
it's sort of, it might be carried or seen through each rule, right? So he's going to say, first of all, his first idea is, is on any given Sunday, a variety of gifts might be present. And he kind of lists several of them. By the way, he's dealing with the lesser gifts as he's described, but he lists them. Song, a tongue, several things. Why would a variety of gifts be present? Well, they'd be present for the building up of the body. And then he says, um, if there are people who have a tongue to share, that's fine. But not all day, and not, not tons and tons of people, two, maybe three at most, should be sharing with their tongue. And he says, and they should have an interpreter. And they should each share in their own turn. Why would he say that? For the building up of the body, the big idea. And then he gives another rule. If there's no interpreter, then there, there is no place in the assembly for the tongue. Why does he say that? He says that for the building up of the body. I'll give you a, here's another Burkina Faso example. We were in church one Sunday. So in Burkina, the main language of the church we attend is called Moray. Um, the trade language, if you don't speak Moray, the trade language is French. And then of course, most of the team only speaks English. So there was a lot of interpreting going on, okay? But on a particular Sunday, we had somebody from the southern part of Burkina Faso come up and he spoke Jula. He was from the Jula people, so he spoke Jula. So he said, I have a song I would like to sing, but he did not speak Moray, nor did he speak French. So someone who spoke Moray and Jula said to him, well, what's the song you wanna sing? And he explained the lyrics of the song he was gonna sing. And then the, the translator said, hey, we have someone who's gonna sing a song. He's gonna sing it in Jula, but here's the words of the song. And they said it in Moray, which then someone translated into French, which then eventually got to my ears in English. It was that kind of Sunday, okay? But, and then we sang the song. And we all knew what we were singing, but he was singing in Jula, but we had an interpreter. I remember thinking to myself, this is a, this is a 1 Corinthians 14 moment, being perfectly executed. That's what he's saying. Okay, let's keep driving. We're fine. Let's keep cruising along. I'm gonna read 29 through 33. And I wanna know, like, what is the big idea? <laughs> let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to one another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I'll stop there. <clears throat> now, there might be a couple of big ideas here, but the one that I take note of especially is verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In some translations, you'll have the phrase, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. I actually prefer that more because... I think what Paul has in mind when he says peace here is the idea of shalom. And disorder is a closer near opposite to shalom than confusion and peace are. When you hear confusion and peace, you don't think of those as opposites. But with shalom, disorder is almost a near opposite. You might think of it this way. The first time shalom shows up in the Bible, the idea is at creation when on the seventh day the Lord rests because everything is as it should be. That's shalom. That's the rest of God. And you see there's perfect order, therefore there's rest. So 
God's will in the church is that there would be no chaos, there would be no confusion, but everything would be as it ought to be. That's the idea. And you see it work out with this. These verses are dealing with the greater gift of prophecy, and he gives these rules, right? He says, two to three prophets might speak for a while, and then he says, then others should weigh what is said. Okay? You shouldn't think it's like... um, Thus saith the Lord, where someone's singing the exact words of God, but rather, as we've been saying, like week over week, is this gift of uh, prophecy is more like foretelling. It's like I, I feel the Lord, you know, I feel the Lord uh, maybe wants me to say this about the scripture we're looking at, and I sort of share from my heart what I think the Lord wants me to say about the word, and then it says, when that's done, other people weigh it. The value of what you said is assessed by others. Now, who the others are, we're not quite sure. Is it the church? Is it the others, the rest of the church? Is it other prophets? Is it people who might have a gift of discernment? I don't know who that is, but it's, it's not as though you're possessed by the Spirit of God and then uttering an indisputable word of God that then kind of comes on the people, but rather... You're seeking to interpret God's word with the spirit and the church is resonating with it. That's the idea. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, okay? He says, hey, if another prophet speaks, then quiet down, let them speak because he's not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then he says this, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets because God wants order, And it's not as though if you have a word from the Lord in you that it has to come out. You can't just blurt it out, he's saying. God's not trying to take the church over with possession, but rather bless and encourage the church. The true way that God, and and, and this, this thought is probably more valuable than the time I'm going to be able to give to it, but the true way that the Lord rules in a church is not by possessing its members, but rather by its members through love and care with one another, deferring to each other and caring for each other. And that's when God rules in the church. That's kind of the idea that's happening here. All right, so we're going to drive a little farther. This might be the time that you want to hold on. Here's what it says. Verse 33b, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. There it is. Like, did you see that coming? Kind of... There's the speed bump. And, and I might ask what the big idea is, though it's not clear that there is a big idea. It's not even clear that it's its own new idea. It's, a, it's not an easy question. Like, what do we do with this teaching? So let me just say that right up front. It's not an easy question, and I'll make it more complicated for you, at least seemingly so. So uh, if, as if it weren't kind of hard enough, if you go to the 11th chapter which is still in the broader section of Paul talking to the church on any given Sunday, 
He's going to be addressing men and women, particularly women, on modesty of worship in the congregation. Okay, that's the basic subject. But here's the verse that surfaces. Verse 5 says, Paul says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, and he goes on to talk about head coverings. The idea is, in 11, is a woman is in church, she is in the congregation, she is praying, and she is prophesying, and the, he's dealing with the issue of modesty at the time, okay? But we have 11 that assumes women pray and prophesy in the church, and then we have 14, which seems to say there's no place for a woman to speak in church. Which, at least at the outset, makes it even more complicated. Pray and prophesy. Clearly they have the gifts. Silence. So what's going on here? Well, I want, to get, I want to frame your expectations. Today, we are not going to get through this whole passage. So today, we are not going to get to, so what does it mean? All we're going to deal with today is some of our natural reactions when we come to a teaching that we do not like to hear. Okay, so... All I really want to address today, in other words, what we're going to do is we're going to slow down at the speed bump so slow, we're going to creep over it. The goal today is to get to the top of the bump, all right, and just work through um, how, how is it, how is it that when I can have a new teaching that comes to my ears that doesn't fit with the rest of how I view life, how do I make sense of that, okay, that's really what we're going to be addressing. So with that said, I just want to tell you about my pastoral tendency. My pastoral tendency is to do one of two things in this. The first is to avoid the teaching entirely. Okay, I just want you to know that I've not been saying to my wife, I cannot wait for the 15th of November. It's going to be like Christmas for me, okay? So pastoral tendency would rather, I'd say on the whole, rather not approach these things. In fact, this is, in fact, why we did not preach this series last year. Is I just did not feel ready to be faithful to this passage. My second tendency, or a second common pastoral tendency, is to blow through the teaching at 65 miles an hour. Just get over the speed bump. It doesn't matter if we catch air. It doesn't matter if people get hurt. The best thing to do is to get it behind us and get going, okay? And that would allow me to say some kind of fine-sounding platitude, like everybody should submit to everybody and the Lord, don't we all agree with that and move on? And nothing is really learned. In fact, actually, harm might have actually happened. Okay? What I'm, I've decided to do after a lot of prayer is to slow down and actually take more time on this because what I've come to believe is when we get to a culturally touchy subject, it's actually a sign that the church needs more, not less teaching. When we get to a place where we already don't like what we're hearing, well, we have to remind ourselves it's God's word and it's for our good. And that means we need to slow down a bit. So that's gonna be the goal. That's why we're slowing down. So all I'm really dealing with today is what about this? What do we do with challenge when it comes to us? What's some of the ways we can deal with it? And, and I, that makes me wanna talk about worldview. So real quick, I wanna describe worldview. Everybody has one. Your worldview is how you make sense of the world around you that you've experienced, okay? And we all have a worldview. 
You don't really think about your worldview. It's like the operating system that's going on behind your active thoughts. But nonetheless, we build worldviews. And you might think, well, if it works, if it's how I view the world as I see it, then it's a good worldview. But that's not exactly true. Every worldview is uh, probably right in some ways, but no worldview is entirely right. I'll give you an example of how you can, how someone could grow up with a broken, a very wrong worldview and yet think it's fine. Let's imagine you're a child in a very broken home where nothing is trustworthy and all you ever experience is people breaking their word and abandoning you, okay? You can imagine how you would grow to have a worldview that no one is worth trusting. No one is worth trusting. And that would be subtly in the back of all your relational decisions. So that when there's a relationship that where someone lets you down, in the back of your mind, you were waiting for it. You knew it was going to happen. See what I told you? That's who people are. And in fact, when somebody's actually really extending you trustworthiness in a relationship, you're not able to give them your, yourself back. You're not able to give what a real relationship requires because you know that they're not trustworthy, which then causes the relationship to fail. And then what do you say? You say, see, I knew it. No one is worth trusting. Now that is, that's a, that's a worldview. It's a cogent worldview that is not right. Okay? And now we all have worldviews. And the important thing about it is the worldview lets you think that it tells us we're right. And then the thought or the experience that hits us, we then fig- have to figure out how to accommodate it into the, the thinking that we have that is right. Okay, so that's what's important about a worldview. You think you're right. And then a strange teaching or a strange event in your life happens. And now you have to figure out what to do with it. Now, sanctification in Jesus Christ might be described as changing of your worldview. That's what sanctification really is. It's not new rules. It's not new rules. It's a new way of viewing life. So sanctification is the process of you seeing things you once thought uh, maybe were good for you and now knowing they bring death and looking at things that once looked tedious to you and now appear life-giving. You see how it's changing? It's the changing of your operating system. That's really what the Lord is trying to do as he sanctifies you. Which means when the Lord is working on you, the assumption is sometimes you're not right. You're not right. And now when there's a strange teaching coming in, if you have an open heart, you have to say, given the fact that I'm not right, is this does this thing have the right to change me or not? Okay? Uh, A soul that is being sanctified by the Spirit is open to the notion that it does not view the world the right way. And when it encounters something in the Word that's strange, it's one of these prime moments to say, maybe I see the world poorly. So, Sometimes we're right, but not always. What I want us to ask us to do is to open ourselves up. And today's, today's entire time, whatever time I have left, is really devoted to showing, showing you what happens when people do not open themselves up, okay? I would say this. This is especially valuable of a question if your worldview on a subject looks like the world outside the church. 
if your view of things matches their view of things, then this would be one of those places where we might say, uh, to be suspicious that our worldview is not right is wise. Because God is taking us out of the world. He's taking us out of the world. So that might set us, uh, try to orient us towards this this idea. So today we're going to look at this text. We're going to look at it from the perspective of like, what if we come to this text with the sense of the way I view the world is right, therefore the plain reading of this scripture can simply not be true. It can't be true. What do we do? Here's the, here's the first. We're going to walk down five, five ways people respond to these things. The first one is maybe the most aggressive, which is it is not Scripture. It's not Scripture. I know you see it here, but it shouldn't really be here. Now, and by the way, every one of these examples I'm going to give you today has, is actively being done in the realm of biblical scholarship about this passage. Okay? So... We would call this, you'd say, well, if it's not scripture, then what is it? They would say, well, this is a gloss. That's the word that would be used. It's a gloss. And what a gloss is, is in ancient manuscripts, you'd have the manuscript of 1 Corinthians, and then someone would write a note in the margin. A gloss is a notation in the margins of scripture that were written by scholars to clarify something. And as time went on, on occasion, those glosses got migrated by transcribers into the word. And someone might say, this is not scripture, it's a gloss. I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example of an active gloss that's in our Bible. If you go to John chapter five, and you don't need to turn there, but it might be fun for you if you have any other translation than the ESV, because I'll have the ESV up on the screen. But if this is John chapter five, it's a very familiar story. I'm gonna read you five verse two. It says this. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. That's verse two. Here's verse three. In these days lay multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's verse three. Here's verse four. You guys have a verse four? Anybody here have a verse four? You see that? Now, if you have a decent Bible with notes, the verse four might be in the bottom. Okay, it might say, note, early manuscripts do not possess verse four, but this is what the gloss says. Verse, we could say, possibly fake verse four. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease he had. Now, do you see how that's a clarifying comment that someone might write in the margins of the text? Because you're reading the story of, of, here's a pool at Bethesda, here's all these lame invalids around it, what's going on? And someone might say, well, I can tell you what's going on. The pool of Bethesda, there was this theory that an angel came. Sometimes the spring would bubble and they would say, that's an angel walking. So they put this in the margins and what eventually happened in the manuscript of scripture is it migrated in. So some early translations, in fact, if you had a pure King James Version, I bet you'd have verse four in your text, okay? That's a picture of a gloss. My question is, does verses 33b through 35 of Corinthians clarify anything for you? Doesn't feel that way from me. I thought we were just driving along, fat, dumb, and happy. 
talking about gifts. And then blam, verse 33 to 35. Like it, it is not clarifying. If anything, it is challenging. It doesn't even, we don't see it coming. Now, the individual who suggests it's not scripture, but a gloss, he happens to be a giant in the field. So scholars tiptoe around him. Um, And I'm going to kind of give you his rationale. Here's why he says it's a gloss. And I'll say, he would say, I'm not doing service to the teaching here, and I'm not. But I will say this, I've done service to his teaching during the weeks. So, uh, but here's, here's the summary of it. He would say, we have a few manuscripts in our possession, a very few which have this teaching of 33 to 35, where it's actually in a different place in the book of 1 Corinthians. Instead of it happening right there in 33, it happens at the end of this chapter after verse 40. So it's just slid down to the very end. Okay, and he says, that's how we know it's a gloss. And to which he says, therefore, it's not scripture. Now, I want to be clear. Every single manuscript that we've ever found of 1 Corinthians in the history of the church has this teaching. And yet because of that, he's saying it's not. Furthermore, we have commentary on this passage exactly where it is in the scriptures from the early second century. So Origen comments on this passage early in the life of the church. What's interesting about this particular theologian is he says this. He says, Actually, the real reason we know it's not scripture is because it's irreconcilable with chapter 11, verse five. And you go, aha, aha. That's what's really goading at him. What's really goading at him is he has a high confidence in the world of scripture up through like this comment in 11 where women do pray and prophesy. And he gets to something that challenges and he says, the world I'm in, I know the world I'm in is right. Therefore, this has no place. That's essentially what he's doing. He's saying, I know it's not scripture because it doesn't fit into my world. And the idea of a gloss came second. All right, let's look at a second example. The second example that you might say is, is, well, not all scripture is equal. It sounds like this. You, you, You do a passage like this and someone says, yeah, but that's Paul. And then they kind of, they do this with their shirt and they go, I'm really what you would call a red letter Christian. A red letter Christian. That's kind of the noble way of saying, I actually don't know much of the Bible. Okay? Uh, So a red letter Christian is somebody who really bases the truth claims on the words that Jesus said. So my first question to that would be, uh, how much of the New Testament did Jesus write? Just roundabout percentages. Zero. zero. Jesus wrote zero percent of the New Testament. In fact, two of the four gospels we have with all the red letters were not even written by apostles. John, Mark, and Luke were not even apostles. Whereas the apostleship of Paul is beyond question. It is beyond question to the early church. So to say that, well, this is Paul, but that, that there is Jesus, you, you can't even do that. This is Paul or that's Luke. 
But not all scripture is equal is, is how some people write this. Is they, they, get, they get to these things and they say, well, it's just at a different standard. You know, it's, it's less true. It's less helpful. I have, a, I have a commentary on my desk. I forgot to bring it in the room. I have a commentary on my desk. It's on the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Okay, just to let you know, 1 Timothy starts off this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy starts off this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The book of Titus starts off essentially this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So who wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus? Paul. Paul the apostle. Okay, but when you read this scholar, if you go to the, very, the, pre, the preface where he's dealing with stuff, he says, and, and he is one of many. So he's standing on the shoulders of giants where he says, the question of authorship remains one of the greatest challenges to the pastoral epistles. Clearly, he ends up siding with, he goes, I have to side with what seems to be the strongest position is that the apostle Paul did clearly not write these epistles, but rather somebody who was post-Pauline, yet writing in the tradition of Paul, pseudonymically wrote those things. They wrote them. And if you were like, wow, that, how, what kind of scholarly brilliance gets that? Do you know what the seed, the seed of that entire theory is? First Timothy chapter two on women in the church. The seed of that whole thought is obviously Paul would never have said that. Therefore, Paul could not have written it. So, Another approach is scripture. I just want to show, I, what I want us to see is some of the ways we tackle scripture where we have this unassailable confidence in our worldview. So the teaching has to bow. The teaching has to bow. Someone in the, between the services shared with me, a scholar said this, we have a habit of, arrest, of take, arresting scripture for our own uses rather than allowing scripture to arrest us. It's well said. Here's, here's a third way. A third approach or a defense of sort of a worldview is to say, oh, no, 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 no. You're reading the passage all the wrong way. You're reading the passage the wrong way. Now, I will say about this one, this can be a noble and faithful exercise. So there are times, even in the first Corinthians that we've already done this. Last Sunday, there were two verses that were extremely difficult to understand and read. I mean, and you have to kind of go, how must we read these in light of the broader teaching? So this can be a very noble exercise. The question is, is your heart open to be sanctified? Is your worldview willing to be sanctified in the process? Or are you defending your worldview in the process? Okay, but I'll give you an example here. Of uh, Someone looks into this, this chapter here in 14 and says, no, 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 you need to understand you're reading it all the wrong, wrong way. And they look to one tiny participle in the 35th verse. It's that red word I have up there, that word but, which in your Bible says or. Okay, they say the proper way to read this is as though Paul is commenting on a standing position of the church of Corinth. He's saying what he's in fact doing is the opposite of what you think. He's saying they think women should be quiet and he's saying, are you crazy? So the only thing you have to do to kind of adopt this teaching is change one word and, and, and arrange it the way I have. So um, you take the first half or the, the last half of 33 and you stick it with the earlier conversation and then you, you, you say, you write down what Paul said about women and at the end you say, but, does this come from the word of God that you found this? 
In other words, what he's saying is, is uh, the suggestion is, is that Paul is defying this teaching of the church. And he says, we find this uh, in scripture often, which is not true. We find this in scripture rarely. We do find this in scripture in 1 Corinthians. However, it looks very differently. So if you go to the sixth chapter, what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna grab quotations that the people were using to justify misbehavior. And he's gonna challenge those teachings. So like chapter six, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. We put those in quotes. Like you say, all things, you justify your behavior under the, this phrase, all things are lawful for me. But he says, but not all things are helpful. And then we put quotes again. You say, all things are lawful. He says, but I will not be dominated by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But I say, God will judge the stomach and food. But the body is for the Lord. Now, in that area, you do have this idea that there's a teaching that if you weren't careful, you would read the wrong way. What we have, however, is a ton of context. The whole line of reasoning makes us come to this conclusion. It happens again in chapter seven. Look at seven, verse one. He actually tells us right off the bat, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and that's how we know to put quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, quote, because he says, hey, you wrote me about a matter. And then the rest of the talking is about how, is to the opposite of it, how it is good for a man to have sexual relations with his wife. So there are these occasions that it happens in the word. The question that we have to ask is here in 14, do we, is there any reason we should see this coming? And does Paul give us, I mean, you can keep reading to the end of the chapter if you want. It's not very far away. <laughs> like, is there any context for this? And the answer is no. And that's just one example. There's other examples. Some people say, well, what, what Paul's doing here, he's talking to the Jewish Christian women only because he used the word saint and he used the word law. I don't find that helpful. I, I, those feel to me like big stretches. Big, and they don't, they don't get rid of questions. In fact, for me, they cause bigger questions. Like, if the women, in fact, are presently being silent in church, now I really don't know what to do with chapter 11, verse five, because it sounds to me like they're speaking in church. It sounds like they're immodestly active in church. In fact, it sounds to me like they're, the root problem in 11 is suddenly gone in 14. So there's... There, you can say it here, if, if you're not worried about the whole letter, you can do a lot of things to defend a worldview in a moment. All right, problem number four. And I'm, I'm moving, there's five, so we're almost there. Problem number four. It's all about context. John, what you need to know is how it was back then. Okay, this is a classic. This is a classic. In fact, I just need to tell you uh, and by the way, this can be a very faithful and noble exercise. Context is a, is a big deal in understanding scripture. However, I will say I am often amazed, amazed at how well some people seem to know the ancient Near East history and context so well. Like, man, it took you five minutes to get to 1 Corinthians, but you know about the ancient Near East context. I mean, there's a, 
I think we may not be as smart on the ancient Near East as we think we are. It's actually a hard thing to fully unpack. But nonetheless, this can be a genuine exercise of, well, you need to know how the world was back then when it was writing. And so typically people will say that. They'll say, you got to realize the church was fairly chauvinistic back then. There was a, I mean, women really didn't have much esteem in society and it was a male-dominated society. And by the way, that is true. It was a male-dominated society and women were not highly valued outside the church. That's the point. That's exactly the point. In fact, if the more and more you understand the ancient Near East context, the more and more the Apostle Paul begins to look like a radical, raging, progressive liberal. He's a crazy liberal. Because outside the walls of the church, a slave is a non-person. But inside the walls of the church, he's a son of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And the whole fellowship is called slaves. Paul introduces his letters, Paul, a servant. We translated servant in the ESV. You know what it is? It's doulos. It's a slave. We just don't like the word because of our American background. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. So he says to the church, you're all slaves. And he says to the slaves, you're co-heirs with Christ. You're kings, you're royalty, you're royal priesthood. That's First Peter. So inside the church, it's radically countercultural to the outside of the church. Outside the church, women are lower class. Inside the church, Paul says, for in Christ we are neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. So inside the walls of the church, what you find is radical equality, radical equality that you don't see anywhere else. Now, I'm not going to say radical equivalence, radical equality, okay, that you find nowhere else in the Greco-Roman world. And yet what we say is, is, well, the world was chauvinistic at the time, therefore the church is chauvinistic at the time, which I think, well, this is the Bible we were given. Are we to suspect, and someone might say this, what, you know, it might have just, the issue of women might just have been a hill too big for Paul to climb. Like, you can't tackle every subject. You can't really hammer out every issue. Does the ministry of Paul in Scripture seem to smack to you as though he stopped halfway on anything? The church abolished circumcision for crying out loud. I mean, you think men and women is a big issue? Circumcision was released so was Sabbaths and new moons and special days and food sacrifice to idols, all these other things, all these other things. He's not, it, it's not even like he's like, maybe, maybe try to sort of, he writes bombastic statements to knock the doors of these old inhibitions off or these old restrictions off. He says, if you go get circumcised, you might as well just assume you're not a Christian. That's what he says in Galatians. Same place he said, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So everywhere in Paul's life, we see him radically fighting for the exact truth in the life of the church. And yet we say here, well, because the prevailing culture was such a way, I find that difficult. It also leaves us wondering, well, then why would the Lord give us sacred scripture that is giving us a tarnished picture? That is a chant that leads us down the road of going, well, maybe this really isn't, all scripture may not in fact be equal. You see how they all hold hands? Another context statement might say this. Some people say, well, what Paul is really saying in, in 1 Corinthians 14 is that women shouldn't speak because they're not well-educated. 
So I would say, well, then why not say those who are not well-educated should not speak because it guarantee there's a bunch of men in that church that aren't well-educated. Plus, there are some women in the church that we have every reason to think are well-educated. Lydia in the church of Philippi, if you read about her, my hunch is she knew what was going on. Priscilla and Aquila, my hunch is she knew what was going on. You read the last chapter of Romans where he greets all these, many of whom are women in the church, you realize they are astute. We have clear evidence from chapter 11 that they received the spirit of God. And I would say this, since when in the scriptures do we have the standard that you have to be well-educated to be of use to God? When? Is that how Jesus ministered? Did Jesus traffic among the well-educated? When he did, he usually said, you brood of vipers. He called fishermen to himself. So if it is about education, you would have expected it to be a general statement, not a gendered statement. And it doesn't even seem to match. This is a passage out of Acts. This is Acts chapter four. Uh, Peter and John, they, they raise this person from being a cripple and then they get in big trouble. They preach this big message. They enrage the well-educated PhDs of the time. Everybody's angry, okay? And then they get their preach on after they're done and they're done with their preaching. This is what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they, you know why? Because God in his spirit sometimes does the best through unlikely people. That's how you know sometimes. Look, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. There's, there's a way that God testifies of himself best in un, unexpected vessels. We need to be careful with context. The question is, are we open to thinking that maybe our worldview is not quite Here's a last one, and this one is, uh, I, know I'm, I know I'm long on time, but it, five is better than four. Someone would say this. Well, you need to understand where Scripture's headed in order to understand what it means. This is very popular today, very popular. All the coolest PhDs have it. You need to understand where Scripture's headed. In other words, it's not what's written that matters. It's what we know God wants eventually that matters. Do you, see, do you see where you just put yourself in the driver's seat? You see the presumption? The presumption is I know where God wants us to go. Now I am the arbiter of scripture. So you need, listen, listen, listen. This Bible, it's, it's helpful. It's a good thing. It's like a divine snapshot of God's will on the way to where he wanted it to go. It's good. It's pretty good. It's old. It's a good snapshot. But what we really need to know is appreciate where God's headed. And when we know where God's headed, then we can sort of uh, interpolate in between the two points where our position should be right now. Man, this is so in vogue. This is so in vogue. Everyone who's cool thinks this these days, okay? And, and it creates, it creates, uh, I'll give you one example. I'll close with this example. Uh, and uh, again, I just want us to see how it puts us in the driver's seat of Scripture. But, uh, uh, no, I don't want to disparage individuals. So there are good scholars who are way smarter than any of us and have devoted themselves and do a tremendous amount of good work, but it does not mean that they've given themselves entirely over to the Lord. 
And this particular example, this person's espousing what he would call the redemptive movement, which what he's going to say is, is the idea of men and women, God's goal is to soften those, dis- those distinguishing marks over time. So he's going to espouse something that he calls ultra-soft patriarchy. That patriarchy should be progressively softening, softening and softening and softening, so that the vestiges of manhood and womanhood are just faintly present in the eschaton, okay? Obviously, this is the case. Obviously. Because you know where things are going, right? So what he does, he's going to offer us an 18-step process to determine how then do we read Scripture. If we have this ancient snapshot and we know where it's going, then what process do we use? He's going to say, well, there's 18 simple steps to do that. Okay, I'm going to read you step one. Step one, okay? Assessing the redemptive movement has its complications without going into elaborate explanation. I will simply suggest a number of guidelines. Okay, this is step one, by the way. Not all of this is step one. Number one, this is 1.1 is what this is. The ancient Near East Greco-Roman real world must be examined along with its legal world. Two, the biblical subject on the whole must be examined along with its parts. Three, the biblical text must be compared to a number of other ancient Near East and Greco-Roman cultures, which themselves must be compared with each other. And four, any portrait of movement must be composed of broad input from all three streams of assessment, foreign, domestic, and canonical. Step one. Step one. Now, I mean, you could have six PhDs and not be able to do this. And I just, this is where when, when, when we study the word and we realize the lengths that we go to avoid the plain reading of scripture, the right to push on us, that we should just stand up and notice it. We need to remind ourselves, this was a letter written by a man to a church. The letter was read before the entire church in one sitting, and it meant something to them. They didn't need 18 steps. They didn't need 34 sub-steps. They didn't need to ask, well, is this really Paul? The letter came. It was read from Paul. It was scripture. It had authority, and it was for their good. And it pushed on them. That's all I want to do today. Like, If you're asking, so what does it mean? I would say come back next Sunday, but you can't. Uh, But we're gonna, over the next week or so, we're gonna tackle what then does it mean? If if we're open to, um, Lord, we're open to be changed. Um, We're open to be challenged. Then I think we're open to learn the best way. All right, thanks for your time. Let me pray. and, uh, And then I'll go home and... I hear what my wife has to say. <laughs> Lord, uh, we want to thank you for uh, your kindness to us over the many ages, Lord, for the word you've given us, uh, that your spirit is at work in us. And Lord, we, we know we see thumb, some things rightly, but not everything rightly. And so, Lord, I ask you to help me and you help all of us as we... Uh, uh, Approach your word in such a way that it, it is a way of life, Lord, and not, not a stumbling block or a speed bump to our faith. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.